This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you're listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode of Anchored is dedicated to all the military men and women who have risked their lives for us over the years. Thank you for your service, your dedication, and your selflessness. Our lives are truly enriched because of the sacrifices you have made. David Fokertz is the Chief Operations Officer at Project Healing Waters. He first joined the Army in 1999 with the Nebraska Army National Guard, and in 2005 he was deployed to Iraq where he suffered a devastating injury that changed his life. In this episode, David opens up with me about his experience as an injured veteran and shares how he became involved with Project Healing Waters. Project Healing Waters is a special organization that's dedicated to the physical and emotional rehabilitation of disabled active military service personnel and disabled vets. Through fly fishing and associated activities, including education and outings, they have made a difference in thousands of people's lives and are planning on continuing to do so. For more information, visit www.projecthealingwaters.org. I'm originally from Nebraska. It's in the middle of the Midwest. I grew up on a... uh, small farm out there. Corn and soybeans is primarily what we raised. Um, We also had some cows. We we had a muddy creek that flowed through our pasture land. This is, once again, the middle of the Midwest, so it was muddy water. Um, We had bullheads and carp. 
Okay. So I grew up fishing for bullheads and carp with either like a long cane pole, throwing, you know, worms or grasshoppers or whatever I could find, you know, chicken livers, etc. But I loved, it was only like a half mile from my home. And I'd go down there like every day during the summer and just have fun with my friends. We just fish all day long. I mean, it was just something I, I really loved as a kid. As I grew older, I didn't get, you know, deeply involved in it, but I always had, I guess, the angling gene, I guess. I always enjoyed it. So I got a little bit into, you know, bass fishing, panfish when I was in high school. I mean, college, not so much. I just, I was involved with other things that interest me. I played football, American football. So I did that. And then that's also, I got involved in the Army National Guard. That's kind of how I started my military service. So I did, I joined the Army National Guard and I wanted to do that so I could pay for my college. So that's how I got involved in, in the military originally. Uh, originally it was all about just, I want to do something to pay for college and get me through and move on with life. But then I realized that I actually liked the military. Oh, okay. And it, you know, really resonated with me, um, being able to serve my country. And so that's when last couple of years of college, I decided to join um, ROTC. It's called the Reserve Officer Training Program. Essentially, individuals that go through that, once they graduate from college, they, they get commissioned as a officer. Um, they can go into reserves. They can go active duty. Um, in college, I uh, got a degree in teaching. Um, I just wasn't really something that I wanted to do. I wanted to do serve my country full time. So that's I went straight into the the army as a young engineer officer straight out of college. Wow, and I don't understand any of the hierarchy yeah. or the roles. I mean, and I can't even blame it on being Canadian. Yeah. I just it's really intimidating for somebody who's not involved in that life because yeah. there's so many titles and yeah. Okay, so from a ranking stance, were you? Can you just give me like a layman's term? Were you like an entry level guy? Yeah, I was a. Entry-level officer. So how the American Army system sets up the officer ranks, we have a second lieutenant, which is the basically, you know, the entry-level officer position. Um, then from there, it goes to first lieutenant, then captain, then major, then lieutenant colonel, colonel, and then there's four different levels of generals. Oh, wow. Okay. And then, then that's the officer side. And then the uh, what's called the non-commissioner, non-commissioned officer side, um, and also enlisted side, which is starts out a private, private E two, private first class, specialist, and corporal, sergeant, staff sergeant, all the way up until uh, sergeant major. So, lots of different ranks, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Okay, so I'm I can't yeah. I've got to ask. It's it's the elephant in the room. I mean, you've got an enormous scar. Your entire arm is scarred up. Is this does this have something to do with? Yeah. Your deployment? Yeah, we can. You want to talk about that now, or do you want me to kind of um, talk about how my military career led up to that? That'd be or? great, yeah. If you don't mind, do you yeah. mind telling me your story? Not at all. Go for it. After I graduated, went through all my uh, officer training, went through engineer officer course, graduated that, graduated ranger school, immediately deployed to Iraq pretty much um, right away once I got to my unit. I deployed in March of 2005, and we were um, stationed uh, at a place called Taji. Um, it was just northwest of Baghdad, maybe 15, 20 miles. Um, it was considered uh, one of the, uh, definitely one of the rougher areas. For those who are familiar with military history, it was kind of part of the, I think they call it the Sunni Triangle, which is part of the heart of the insurgency in Iraq. So I was only there a month. So I went through helping out with the headquarters element for a while. And then eventually I started uh, going out on missions, and I was in the process of taking over a platoon 
um, being in charge of a platoon as a second lieutenant. And one of the uh, missions that we went out on, um, so a little bit of background that led to this mission. Um, the day before, a insurgents had shot down a helicopter. It wasn't a, an American helicopter, but it was a contractor's helicopter. As an engineer, our primary mission in Iraq is to secure uh, and clear roads. So that way it provides um, avenue of travel for all of our friendly forces. So a big part of that mission is uh, going out and finding IEDs and then asking um, explosive ordnance teams to come out and remove them, whether that's exploding them in place or removing them and taking them off the road. Um, don't need to get into all of the nitty-gritty details of what those things are, but primarily they're just cobbled together military munitions, uh, whether it's artillery shells, mortar rounds, rockets, things like that. And people need to realize that Iraq was pretty much one big ammo dump. I mean, there was just ammo all over the place. And once the regime fell, I mean, it was a free-for-all and just bad guys got everything. But So that particular day, we were clearing a route up to where that helicopter had crashed so we could have friendly forces go in there and clean it up. And we were doing great. We were doing, uh, at that time, dismounted route clearance, which means that we were literally on the road, walking down the road with mine detectors. And the only thing we had for protection were obviously our body armor, but then also we had a signal jammer system from our one of our vehicles that was supposed to prevent remote detonation, but they were not perfect, <laughs> and they only worked to a certain range. And <clears throat> just at that point in time, Allied forces, which were American and all of our allies, had not really brought in a lot of the up-armored vehicles yet, and that's what our vulnerability was, and that's why the opposing forces uh, were using IEDs to get after us. And it wasn't really until mid-2005 when we really started getting the armored vehicles in there. So, so yeah, we were, we were very vulnerable. Um, and me being a young lieutenant, one of my first missions, I was really out there leading the guys. I wanted to show them I was willing to put myself out there and lead from the front. So I volunteered to be the security forces that would go down the sides of the road or on the road to just look out for bad guys hiding, whether, or there's uh, I don't get too technical, but there'd be the, all the IEDs were either signally, um, remotely detonated or they'd have a direct line to it, like a piece of wire or something. So we'd look for things like that. And then the guys behind us would be sweeping the, the roads. So earlier in the day, we did find an IED and we had EOD, explosive ordnance guys, come out. They got rid of it. And then it was getting towards the end of the day and we decided, hey, let's keep clearing the road up here a little bit further before we the next group comes out here and relieves us. We were, we were kind of in the a place where we were near the road and we uh, saw a car about 100 meters up and we we're like what's that's kind of weird because everybody knows that they can't drive through our area when we're working because you know just because of the uh, threat from uh, vehicle IEDs you know um, car bombs essentially so at that time I raised my arm and I was like you know waving them back and right at that moment one of my guys there was four of us up there including me uh, one of my guys next to me pointed the road and said, hey, what's that? And we looked down briefly. It was like a piece of cardboard or something or just something was covering a little piece of the road. And right as he was doing that and right as I was raising my arm, it goes off. And it was basically a fade to black for me. I don't really remember it too well. Uh, it knocked me out. And it, uh, the guys I saw it happen said it threw me um, 20 feet in the air um, and off the road. Uh, all four of us got blasted back, but um, three of us got shrapnel wounds. Myself was was the worst wounded. I got shrapnel went, went through my 
uh, right underneath my left armpit and uh, lacerated my main artery and cut up some nerves pretty bad. <laughs> um, sorry, it's no, no, it's sometimes hard. it's hard to talk about, but um, yeah, I was in a bad, bad, bad place. Um, once you hit a main artery that close to your heart, I mean, you, you can bleed out really fast. And I remember waking up and uh, still dust in the air, and I was off the road. My head was not all there as far as like see, thinking and, and seeing clearly because the bomb blast, I mean, it rocked me really good. And best, the best way to describe it was I felt like I just did a body flop from a two-story building onto the ground. My whole body felt, you know, I never felt so rocked, I guess, you know, so jarred. First thing I checked was, all right, are my legs there? So I looked down, all right, my legs are there. And I remember standing up and I was still kind of in shock. I wasn't feeling the pain quite yet. And I remember standing up and my left arm was just kind of flopped over and I was like, Oh my God. And you just, just turned your arm over and I just saw that. Yeah. Oh my God, your arm. That is insane. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> I don't want to get too graphic, but I looked over and I saw a hole in my, in my arm and with every, every heartbeat I had, I was squirting blood out I mean, pretty bad because you can see right here is that's where the exit wound was. Oh my yeah. God. I have never, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in my entire life. Yeah. You have got, how many stitches in total for this entire arm? Well, no idea. Um, what they used were staples, actually. It looks like, I mean, are these It looks like railroad tracks, scars? yeah. This scar here on my forearm is actually from a fasciotomy. Um, what that is, essentially, they, they cut open your arm in a long line to relieve the swelling. It's um, huge. How many inches is that? That's probably a good, what, at least, a, at least a 12 inches, if not Jeez, 13, 14. It goes all the way up over your yeah where you decrease your arm is on that goes to the other side of your forearm and then that exit wound in by your armpit that's covered by your shirt that yeah. is insane and then i i got peppered in a few other places i got shrapnel that went through my my cheek right here in fact i still got a piece of shrapnel that's lodged in my cheekbone so whenever i go to the dentist and get x-rays it shows up so yeah i was i was hit pretty bad and i was like i said i, I was not all there because of the concussion from the blast. I mean, I was concussed. I had a mild traumatic brain injury to diagnose me with later. So I tried to get my bearings and check on my guys. Um, one of the other guys was hit pretty hard through the leg. He was bleeding bad. And I realized that, you know, I can't do anything here. Uh, I'm bleeding out myself. So actually, I turned and I ran back to our main element. And by that time, uh, all of our vehicles from the rear had came up and they formed a perimeter and you know, because um, once something like that happens, you always, okay, what's next? Or is there another ambush? There's going to be small arms fire. What's going to happen? There's going to be RPGs. We didn't know. So I ran back to the vehicle where my platoon sergeant was. He's pretty much the uh, second command for the platoon. And he was already in the process of calling in a medevac. It's kind of crazy, but they, they had some issues getting a hold of our headquarters element, I think, for a few minutes because we just, once again, it's kind of military. We just changed over some of our communication signals and they were able to get a hold of them finally. And I think they told me that originally they thought they were maybe going to have to medevac us by <laughs> putting us in the vehicles and taking us back to our, our military base in Iraq. But luckily we were able to um, get a uh, flight medevac to come in. So Blackhawk helicopters came in took me and two other guys that were that were wounded into Baghdad Hospital for the American Forces set up. 
And thank God for modern military medicine because they had pretty much everything that you need for an intensive trauma um, surgery and um, care they had there in country. Uh, in, in a lot of previous conflicts, they didn't have those type of things. They'd have to medevac you to, you know, stateside or some other American or whatever military post. But in order to save my arm, because once you, they put a tourniquet on me and I stopped the blood. And once you do that, you only have, you know, an hour, hour and a half before if you don't get blood flowing again, it's going to turn, I may be wrong, to turn this gangrene, oh, this gangrene or it's just pretty much turns to poison and it, it will kill you. So when I first got into Baghdad in the ER there, um, one of the guys came up to me like, hey, sir, you're probably going to lose your arm. <laughs> I was just like, really? So matter of factly like that? Yeah, yeah. Were you married at this time? Um, no, I was not. Yeah, still still single then, which is probably good. Um, obviously, my, my parents and my family back home, were, you know, once they found out, they were worried sick and all that. But things just kind of were blurry from there on. But um, uh, So what they did is they took a vein from my left leg, and uh, they actually used that to, and they sewed it into where the separation was in my main artery, my, my arm here. That allowed the blood to keep flowing, and it saved my arm. And believe it or not... Um, they used, uh, they were using for pretty much an ancient medicine technique where they put leeches onto your hand, and that helped with the blood circulation, and it helped suck out the bad blood. So <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, I didn't. So that yeah, look, you can look it up. But um, no, no, I I believe yeah. everything you're saying. I'm just because I remember kind of waking coming to, and I remember seeing these black things on my hand. I was like, what? What are those things? What? Are, what are, what is this? Um, but then I found out later, yeah, they, they use leeches to, you know, help out with saving limbs because, it, you know, it helps the circulation and it helps suck out the, the bad blood. But from there, they medevaced me to Longstuhl, Germany, um, where I got stabilized and had further surgeries there just to stabilize me and, you know, clean me up. And Because I mean, Iraq is an extremely dirty place, extremely dirty environment, extremely, you know, dusty and everything. And, you know, once you get open wounds, they got to, you know, keep you clean and keep you from infection. It was soon medevac to stateside to Walter Reed in um, Washington, D.C., and that's where they did further um, stabilization uh, surgeries on me. I was an inpatient for a little over two months. Uh, they did multiple surgeries on me. I mean, I probably, when all said and done, I probably had, you know, 20 plus surgeries. Because at first, after my injury, my entire left hand was paralyzed, and it was paralyzed for over a year. And that was very difficult for me to deal with at the time because doctors were even um, giving me scenarios of, well, you know what, it might be better if we just amputate it because you're going to get more use out of a prosthetic than you're going to get use out of your hand. Because right now it's just a limp piece of flesh and the chances of you getting any movement back are pretty nil. So during this time I was going through some highs and lows. I mean highs of, you know, I survived, I'm alive, I get to live on, my family gets to be with me. Um, I get to have a continued life. Depressed because I wasn't over there helping my guys. You kind of feel guilt. Even though I was wounded, I still felt like guilt over, oh, I got out easy. I, I got back home. I'm being taken care of. Even though I was horrific, you know, pretty severely wounded, I still had, you know, those thoughts in the back of my head. I was letting the guys down. And then I went through major depression and anger, just being in that dark place of, I may never have use in my hand ever again. When you go from being abled with two with two arms and two hands to go and only to have use of one hand there's a severe transition that goes into just because your your mind and your body is so used to doing everything with two hands and all of a sudden having to do everything with one hand it was you know it's just 
a shock to the system. So fast forward, I went home on leave for you know about a month back in Nebraska, and they sent me back to Walter Reed. And they were like, well, sir, we can have you sit around here for another year and see how your nerve damage, if it recovers or not, or we can just send you back to your unit because all the therapies that you can do right now, you can pretty much do at your unit back. My, my unit at that time was back in Fort Riley, Kansas, which was only three hours from my home in Nebraska. So I was like, heck yeah, send me back to Fort Riley. I'll do my, I'll do my recovery there and it allowed me to go home on the weekends to see my family. So it was good for me. I went back there for about a year. So I, I, need, I need to interject a quick story here because it's Project Killing Waters related. So one of the neat things that they do, they take us to the Pentagon and we got a tour of the facility. And one of the neat things, they'd walk us down the hallway and like almost every dang employee in, at the Pentagon would line the hallways and just clap for us. And I was, we were wheeled down the hallways and we'd get, you know, a VIP tour of the facilities and you know, all the big brass would come down and thank us for our service and things like that. But well, really, why, why I'm telling this part of the story is that on that tour, I met a fellow um, young officer like me. He was a second lieutenant. He was an infantry officer. I was an engineer, but we had both completed ranger school. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the military terms of that, but it's a very difficult school. Combat arm guys go to that. Um, it's now open to women too, but it's a very prestigious, very difficult school to complete. So we connected right away. Because of that, we both had the Ranger tab. We both, you know, and we both were wounded um, similarly. Um, I got wounded on my left side, my left arm, and he got wounded very severely on his on his right arm. His elbow was completely jacked up, and he had similar nerve damage. So we kind of connected right away and having similar injuries and having experienced similar situation. And when I first met him, you know, we connected, but I could tell that 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 guy was probably at the end of his rope. He was going through that situation, being wounded. And he was also going through a divorce at that time. And just the way he talked, like, man, I don't know if it's not even worth it being around anymore type of thing. I was like, this guy may, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I, if I found out that he took his life. And the reason I tell that story is because uh, after my year being at Fort Riley, I came back to Walter Reed, continue on my therapies. And that time I started getting a little bit of movement back in my hand. Between the start to finish, it was almost three years total uh, between being wounded and finally being medically retired from the Army. But so... When I went back this time, I was, you know, officially stationed and attached to Walter Reed, so that way I could finish all my medical stuff, all my medical um, board, which is the review process they do determining your disability rating and what you're going to get paid as a pension, whatever they want to call it, um, after you get out. So, and this was fall of 2007. That guy that I had met at the Pentagon, who I connected with, and I felt like this guy, I mean, he, he I wouldn't be surprised if he's not around. So I met him again. And this time, he was the most happy and jovial guy What? that I had ever seen. And I was like, what is up with this dude? Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I was like, hey, man. You know, we remembered each other, and we connected. I was like, hey, man, how's it going? I was like, yeah, I'm doing really good. And he's like, man, what have you been up to? And he's like, dude, I've been fly fishing. What? <laughs> so I was like, fly fishing? Really? And this is, you know, me as a Midwest kid, um, fly fishing was a completely foreign concept to me. Um, it looked like old men in tweed waving sticks in the air. You know, that was my impression. And Or Brad Pitt from River Runs Through It. So that was my impression of what fly fishing was. Okay. And this guy, I mean, he got on me. He's like, dude, you got to come out. You got to try it. You got to do this. And I swear he probably bugged me about it a dozen times before I finally came out and I tried it. So... 
Uh, and this was at the beginning of the genesis of Project Killing Waters. So Project Killing Waters was started by Captain Ned Nicholson. He is a retired Navy captain. Um, he's a Vietnam veteran. He was at Walter Reed around the 2004-2005 time frame, and he was going through his own uh, medical issues. He was recovering from prostate cancer. And he saw all of these young soldiers, sailors, airmen, all these military personnel that were coming back and severely wounded. And he saw the difficulties that they had and the families that there that were with them, the difficulties they had because each one of those that individuals that were severely wounded, the rest of their lives were changed. And he thought that, you know what? Getting them into the outdoors and fly fishing would probably do them some good. And that's really how it started. He wanted to take wounded soldiers fly fishing. Things clicked right away because the individual that was in charge of the um, the chief of occupational therapy, which is where all the wounded guys and gals have to go through when they're trying to figure out how to live life, do daily activities um, with what use they have left of whatever limb they have left or whatever use of that limb or whatever, um, or how to get around and, and navigate with a you know, wheelchair and things like that. So the chief of occupational therapy happened to be a fly fisher himself. So him and Ed connected and the guy was like, this is a great idea. Let's do this. So that's literally how it started. He started showing up once a week doing fly fishing 101 classes. We had other volunteers that got involved right away. They were doing fly tying classes on a weekly basis. Almost immediately, the hospital staff there started getting amazing feedback that this is working. This is having an effect on these individuals. Because, I mean, some of the occupational therapy was literally like picking up a or cylinder wood block and inserting it into a cylinder wood block hole because that was considered you know occupational therapy. So when they started doing fly tying, yeah, it's difficult, but you know overcoming and learning how to use what the what use you had left of your limbs and learning how to tie a fly, it was interesting. It was engaging. Learning how to cast things like that it was interesting, engaging. Getting them out of the hospital, taking them to. You know, as they say, trout don't live in ugly places. D.C. is urban hell. <laughs> it's so much traffic. It's crazy. I mean, Walter Reed's located in a very densely populated area. So it's not exactly the most conducive environment for healing um, just because of the amount of people and the stress and it's hard to get anywhere. And being able to get out of the hospital and go to trout water in Virginia, go to trout water in Maryland and see clear beautiful streams, trees, green, lushness. It had a profound healing and a profound way of getting them out of that funk, best way to describe it. Coming up, David walks me through the specifics of the Project Healing Waters program. If this program sounds like it might be a good fit for you or someone you know, please visit www.projecthealingwaters.org. So that's how Project Killing Water started. So I got involved with it, like I said, around the fall of 2007. And it's because of that gentleman, because I saw the change that happened in him and how much that, you know, he, he went from being a guy that I thought he could literally be dead days from now to now he was somebody that was championing the program and he was excited to fly fish and get people out. And he got me out. So, and our, my, my first fly fishing outing is a good story. Uh, my first fly fishing outing was actually a joint outing uh, with West Point Cadets, which is the Army Military Academy up in New York. Okay. And of all places, we did a, a co-fishing outing 
uh, on Long Island in a place called Conaquat State Park. Okay. So we're driving up there and, you know, all of a sudden we're driving through New York City. It's like, seriously? We're going, we were going trout fishing. <laughs> it's like, we're driving through New York City. We're driving through these huge bridges and crazy traffic. And like, seriously, we're, we're going trout fishing. <laughs> like, what, what, what kind of trout is this? So we get to, and then we get on Long Island and we get up to Conaquat State Park. And it's like this little oasis uh, in the middle of Long Island. It's just absolutely beautiful park. So we went fishing there. I caught my first trout and it was a brook trout. And I remember the moment <laughs> catching it and then pulling it out of the water and just looking at it and seeing how beautiful that thing was and how cool it was to catch it and all the different colors were so neat and then being able to release it back into the water to go and continue to live and have somebody else catch it it was just such a neat experience for me you know because I was that kid that grew up catching ugly bullheads and ugly carp you know it's just um, so that's what I was used to so then catching that beautiful brook trout was just this is awesome this is so neat and I was literally hooked no pun intended I was literally hooked (laughs) I started going as on as many fishing outings as I could. Almost immediately, I started giving back, and I, I would recruit, help recruit, um, get other vets that were at Walter Reed interested in the program, help out with, you know, whether it was setting up outings or classes and things like that. And not soon after, I got to experience one of the best things uh, ever. They sent me to Montana. And when I got you, when you say sent you to, I mean, is this was this paid for by yes. them? So they truly did send you. They sent me to Montana. Yeah, they did. Um, they were already getting donations or people would be contacting Ed and saying, Hey, bring guys out here. We'll, we'll take them fishing. Just get them here and then we'll take care of it once they get here. This is great. In Montana, a guy named Mike Gary, um, he was the owner of Lewis and Clark Expeditions. He's now the owner of Healing Waters Lodge and also Lewis and Clark Expeditions. But the Lewis and Clark Expeditions is the outfitter service that primarily did um, Smith River trips in Montana. What's unique about the Smith River is that it's very hard to get onto. Outfitters are only allowed a certain number of trips a year. The general public has to enter a lottery system in order to get onto the Smith River. And it is a five-day, I think it's like 60-mile. Once you put in the river, like you're on the river and you don't get off unless you you know, you call in a helicopter to get you out. There, there is like one ranch where you can get out and travel out, but it's very difficult. So it's a five-day wilderness float trip. And this young Nebraska guy, you know, was used to, I mean, I, I've been in the Yellowstone National Park before. I've been out west. So, I, I, you know, I was familiar with it. But Smith River, I mean, it was gorgeous. I mean, huge hundred-some-foot cliffs. So in that trip, there were around six or eight other uh, wounded or disabled service members and veterans that were on that trip with me. And the Lewis and Clark expeditions and the guides said, you know, a lot of them were volunteering their time. Mike Gary was reducing, I mean, he was donating that to us. That I mean, this, this is a very expensive high-end trip. In fact, they were doing that was phenomenal. Being able to float down that river every day and see the, the beauty of Montana and just experience that with other wounded disabled vets because every every night we get around a campfire at our campsite and we'd share our stories you know what happened you know what we were struggling with and in many ways it was you know of course it's never advertised it was like in many ways like group therapy for us and actually they they did do like a um there was a film crew there and they did a documentary on us so if anybody's interested there uh it's called i think it's all the way home um was that 
done by Edward Noctree. Um, anyway, so spending time on the water with them for those five days and being able to experience that trip and being, uh, being immersed in nature like that and being put into such a serene and calm environment that was completely opposite of Iraq and what I had gone through. I mean, it just flipped a switch in my head. I mean, it really did. So I got away from thinking about all the negative things, all the things that I couldn't quite do as well. It really made me realize that, you know what? You really don't have it that bad off. Even if you don't get your hand fully functional again, you're going to be all right. There's still awesome things that you can enjoy in life. I mean, you can come back to Montana and you can enjoy this type of stuff and you can, you know, there's always something to look forward to. And it's just... That experience was so phenomenal in my, in my recovery. And I'm a true believer that, I mean, I, I was, there's no doubt I was going, at the time I didn't fully recognize it, but I was definitely going through some post-traumatic stress, especially that first year after. Uh, every night I lay awake reliving what happened, thinking, well, what if I'd done this? Or what if I'd maybe made, check this guy or search this guy? Maybe this wouldn't have happened. Or, and you, you, you just... You could kill yourself thinking, what uh, what could have I done differently? And Or just certain conversations would, all of a sudden, I'd flash back to that moment of feeling that horror and dread of you know what I'd gone through. Or I'd be uncomfortable walking into stores and places because immediately I'd be tactically thinking, like, okay, who could possibly be a threat here? And if something happens, what's the quickest exit out of here? Or, or if I have to deal with somebody, what's the strategy to deal with them? Just, just stupid stuff. And there, or I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and I would go and search the entire house and make sure that every door was locked and every window was locked. Things like that. Because like once you go through a traumatic experience like that, you, you're, you're kind of your physiological and psychological response is to be hyper vigilant and to just do everything you can never to allow something like that to happen. There's, there's all kinds of other things, but that's essentially what I went through. And just being immersed into a environment of beauty and environment of nature. Um, that was opposite of that, that was calm and serene and, you know, nobody else was around there for miles. It helped me out so much. So after that Smith River trip, I came back and once again, I just, this works. This is awesome. I love this. And I just kept on giving back and giving back and getting involved in the program, you know, helping out. So fast forward, I was medically retired from the Army in January of 2008 and then a couple of months later, Ed Nicholson hired me on as the second person on staff for Project Killing Waters. At that time, they were around 35 programs around the nation. So let me kind of give you some background of like how we expanded and things like that. I would like to hear. I don't know that much about the program. Could you ex- maybe explain to all of us what the program is? Yeah. And- and especially where it's at today? Yeah, so sure. Project Killing Waters Fly Fishing, we're, we're dedicated to the emotional and physical recovery of active military service, uh, wounded and disabled active military service, and wounded disabled uh, veterans. And we use the sport of fly fishing as a means of physical and emotional recovery, which includes rod building and things like that. The first program was at Walter Reed, and they realized that this is working. I mean, this is great. So Ed and the other volunteers, they strategize, well, how, how do we spread this? How do we, how do we get this out to other military facilities? It's like, well, how, how do we spread this? So essentially what was developed, best way to describe would be a franchise model in which we partnered with Trout Unlimited chapters and Federation of Fly Fisher Clubs chapters and independent clubs. Because they were a fly fishing club, they automatically had a volunteer base that was knowledgeable and experienced in teaching fly fishing, fly casting, 
taking people on fishing outings. That's all we needed was like a will and somebody interested in being able to do that. So we partnered with them. They would provide the volunteer base and then Project Healing Waters would provide the administrative support and the money to purchase fly rods, to purchase equipment and cover expenses for fishing outings. And then those local um, Trout Unlimited and Federation of Fly Fishing Independent Clubs and their volunteers were our volunteer base. And because of that, we were able to expand quickly. So like the first VA hospital we got into was in Maine, um, and it just, it just exploded. We got on ESPN, we got a lot of national news stories, uh, and we just started exploding as an organization as far as our growth. So then fast forward today, we have over 200 programs around the nation. And once again, what, what, a pro, what we call a program is that partnership between Project Killing Waters nonprofit and those local fishing clubs. And they go, they're associated with a, either a VA facility or a uh, Department of Defense military facility like Walter Reed, where they go on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis or even a monthly basis. That's what really separates us from a lot of other nonprofits that, that do, whether it's fly fishing or other activities, is that we are very much a relational, a relationship-based organization. Our volunteers are showing up at those locations, all those 200 locations, on a continual basis. And they're continually teaching them fly fishing 101, fly tying, rod building, and taking on fishing outings. So that way, in many ways, we become their support group. We have so many amazing stories of our Project Killing Water programs. We get letters that say, this program saved my life. I mean, I was in such a bad way. Uh, I didn't know what was going to happen next. You know, I was considering suicide. I, I, I lost all hope. And being connected with you guys changed me because it's not just about fly fishing. It's it's that group camaraderie that they, that they get back. Because um, a lot of military veterans... It's hard for us to fully connect with individuals that hadn't experienced the things that we had experienced. So bring it, again, to bring, bring them into that group environment where they're meeting up on a continual basis. They're able to share their stories. They're able to get out of their shell and they quickly make friends and they become their own support group in many ways. The fly fishing becomes just a big, becomes just a part of it. So it's this whole program concept that we have, this ongoing um, relationship that we have with them is it really makes it makes a difference. And then just our activities. I mean, fly tying can be so much of a, a Zen-like experience. Obviously, this is not one of those programs where you have to selectively pick the people. They can come to you, yes, right? Yes, yes. Are there restrictions? I mean, could they have been a vet from 50 years ago? Or do they have to have been a vet recently? I mean, what are the what are the rules or yeah, sure. What are, what's the, what are the entry requirements? Okay. If you will? So not to get into all the nitty gritty, gritty details of it, but essentially we serve any wounded, disabled, active military service person that's, you know, at a, at a military facility being treated and can be recommended to our program by the medical staff there. Um, once they're veterans, all we care is that they're a disabled veteran. And how we ensure that is most of our participants are referred to our program by medical staff at the VA facilities. But if they like cold call us, say, hey, I'm interested in a disabled vet. I want to participate in your program. All we ask for is for them to provide like a, a VA letter of eligibility that says, hey, I'm a disabled veteran. Or they just give us, you know, show us their VA card. And we work with all disabled veterans. We're not just a, I guess the term post 9-11, when people throw out that term, uh, that's all military service members who served after uh, September 11th terrorist attack in New York. Pre-9-11 vets are preferred, referred to all the vets who served before that. Well, we don't discriminate between post 9-11 and pre-9-11. We work with all disabled vets. So, in fact, you'd be amazed at how many of the Vietnam vets 
this many years removed are still struggling with PTSD, struggling with Agent Orange. But there's, there's so many of the older vets that are still hurting and, and um, don't want to get into the politics of it. But many of them had no programs when they came back from the war in Vietnam. Many of them were scorned, spit upon. Unfortunately, at that time, people that were anti-war, anti-whatever, they confused that also their hatred towards government or decisions that our government was doing and mixed that in with disdain and dislike for also our veterans at that time. So many of them never had the opportunity that I had immediately to get involved in something positive. In many ways, I, I appreciate what that generation went through because it really paved the way for my generation of, of young, wounded, disabled service members in that America and many Americans said never again. We're not going to allow, we're not going to treat our service members. You know, we can all disagree politically, but the fact is, is that many Americans now, we all agree that taking care of our service members is important because we all sign up for service We and we all say, wherever you send me, we'll go. And then we come back and um, unfortunately we've been received well by the American public and we, we've really had not as much struggles as some of the previous generations have had. We serve a lot of Vietnam veterans, Korean veterans, and there's even a few all the way back to World War II that we, we work with, believe it or not. I mean, there's so many stories of they were shut in for 20, 30 years, barely left their house because of what they what they gone through and severe post-traumatic stress. And somebody pulls them out and says, you need to come to Project Killing Waters, give this a try. And they come, and then it's like the first time they come out of their shell in like 30 plus years. That is so amazing. And they get active and we have some of our most active and best way to describe it would be almost ambassador participants were some of those individuals. This is so cool. Yeah. So how does somebody, if somebody was listening to this right now and they were a disabled vet, what would the next step be if they wanted to contact with us? Yeah. yeah. So um, best thing they can do first would be go to our website, projectkillingwaters.org. Um, they can reach out. We have all of our programs listed throughout the nation. They'll be, they're all listed on their website, so you can figure out which Project Killing Waters program is closest to you, and they'll get you plugged in and connected and get you uh, attending our classes. And uh, that, that's a very important thing is that we're not just a, we're, we're not a take a vet fishing. What I mean by that is that you're not going to call us up and say, hey, take me fishing. Um, we, we want you to show up. We want you to learn how to fly fish first before we take you on an outing. I mean, there are a few times where if it, getting you to outings is really the only way possible to get you to experience, you know, Project Killing Water. We'll do that. But the main objective is to have you show up and learn to fly fish first. Because once you learn, if you learn to fly fish first, when you go to that fishing outing, you're not going to be as frustrated. You're going to have the basics of casting down. You're going to have the basics of, you know, fishing technique down. And I think that is, you know, some people say, well, why do you do fly fishing? Because isn't that like extra difficult? Like, why don't you just take them regular fishing? Okay. So fly fishing, yes, it can be more difficult. But once you overcome that, the feeling, the gratification you get from the feeling of being able to do that and accomplish that is, I mean, for me, it's one of the greatest feelings I ever got. Cause yeah, I, I had really difficulty at first cause my left hand was mostly paralyzed at that time. I had to learn how to figure out and do techniques. Um, so yeah, I mean, we want them to come out and learn to fly fish first before we take them on outings. And the, the meetings that we have and continual instruction is really the core of what we do. And then the fly fishing outings are really kind of the icing on the cake. So all that's done at the local program. And then we also do, um, kind of we have a national program level initiatives. We have probably 25 different trips that we'll set up to destinations all across the nation. We've even had some overseas trips that have been donated to us. So places like Alaska 
to Colorado, to Montana. So like I said, we're over 200 programs across the nation. Um, as of last year, we served over 7,400 disabled service members and vets. Oh my goodness, seriously? Yes, and we have over 3,500 volunteers. We have a pretty big footprint and we're serving a lot of people and we only have six full-time staff. We have a couple contractors, but everybody else are volunteers. I'm so happy I was able to get you on the show because yeah. I've obviously heard about you guys for a long time. Yeah. Or since since the beginning. I remember when this was all starting to take place initially. Yeah. And because uh, there's, there's guys in Canada who yep. are doing this as well. Yep. Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about that. Project Killing Waters Canada. We we kind of, uh, <clears throat> there's some Canadians, that, hey, we want to do this with our vets. So we're like, okay, cool. Like, here's kind of the blueprint. You can take the name Project Killing Waters, but you're, own, you're your own entity. So we're really associates by name only, but they're completely their own nonprofit. Same thing for Australia. There was a Project Killing Waters Australia group, and we're hoping to get a group in New Zealand started. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah. So um, recently, we've had some incredible national exposure. A couple weeks ago, we were on NBC Nightly News. That's fantastic. And we were featured in a little segment for them. So definitely look that up. Yeah. So just a lot of exciting stuff going on. We're still we're still growing. And I mean, the, the need, uh, unfortunately, is not going to end. Uh, even with the Iraq-Afghanistan war is pretty much winding down. Obviously, the... Threat. I mean, the best way to describe the threat level as high as it's ever been in the world. Anytime something could pop up again, and also, I mean, the fact is, is that those who are wounded and disabled, I mean, they need help uh, in many ways for the rest of their lives. And like I said, even these Vietnam era veterans, thirty, forty years removed, you know, they still need help. So the need for our program is is going to be ongoing, and. We hope to continue to be um, a strong and growing nonprofit and be able to continue to meet our mission and help out as many people as we can. Well, you are you are great for this organization. Thank you so much for taking the time to yeah. explain all this to me. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. And honestly, it was a little bit intimidating because, I mean, there's been so many uh, individuals you've had on this podcast that very much are legends of fly fishing. Uh, I'm just one small guy in in the world of fly fishing and, you know, trying to do something good. Um, so I feel honored that you even considered me coming on here and I appreciate it. So do you know what the irony in, in all this is, <laughs> is some of those big names are great for sure, but look at the contribution you guys yeah, have done. Yeah. So there's no need to feel small. You should feel yeah. damn proud of yourself, yeah. man. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. It truly makes my day when I read them. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, 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 oh,